Our sermon text and our gospel lesson is from John chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see the light who is your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The most important question of all time for any person, for every person, is who is Jesus? Everything in your life hinges on your answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Nothing is more important than your view of Jesus and your relationship to Jesus. Nothing's more important than that. Your eternal destiny, of course, hinges on that, whether you know Jesus who he is and believe in him. But your spiritual growth, this side of heaven, is also tied directly to the size of your vision of Christ. The more you can see of the fullness of the glory of Christ, revealed in the scriptures, revealed to you by his spirit, the more your life will be filled with that glory, that same glory. That's why we're studying the gospel of John. John's gospel is giving us a bigger picture, bigger vision of Jesus Christ. As we study John together, we want to see more clearly who Christ is, who he always has been what he has done, what he has said, what he says to you and about you. We want to know him better so that we know reality better, so that we love him better, so that we love one another better. Our passage this morning begins in John 1, verse 6. But to understand verse 6, we need to make sure that we understand what comes before, what came before it. If we're going to understand verses 6 to 13, we 
need to back up and make sure we remember what we learned in verses four and five in particular. John one four says in him. That is in the word in Jesus Christ, in the eternal God who created everything. Who was with God and who was God, who is God in him. Was life. In other words, in the beginning, before there was anything but God, when there was only God, there was life. This means that ultimate reality is living. It's living. Before there was matter or space, before creation, before time began, there was a living being, a living living person. Actually, three living persons in an eternal community of love, mutual love. Fundamental reality is living. In the beginning was was life. God is life. The eternal word is alive. A living person, not a human person. A divine person. He has been living and thinking and feeling and loving. Being full of life forever. For all eternity there was life. Personal life, divine life, eternal life. Ultimate reality is alive. In him was life. And then the rest of verse four says, and that life was the light of man. So here, John makes a transition. In his text, he makes a transition from calling Jesus life. To calling Jesus light. And we could say these are synonymous. They are referring to the same person, but. Getting at that one eternal person from from different angles. That eternal, personal, divine life, John says, was also an eternal light. He was the light of men. And so why does John make this transition from life to to light? Well, we could the theological answer maybe is that, well, because Jesus is both. It's true. But it's also because John is getting ready. He's about to talk about spiritual life and spiritual death or spiritual blindness. And one of the best ways to understand spiritual life and death is to relate them to light and darkness. When we, if you were to say to somebody, you know, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're, you're a dead person, and yet they're walking around and, and living, it might be hard to understand, but we understand it better when we say, well, you're blind, because we use that analogy more readily. People who are spiritually dead are blind. They cannot see the light. Spiritually dead people can walk and talk and work and play and think and feel. 
They can see physical objects with the eyeballs in their head. But they are dead because, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, 13, seeing they do not see. Seeing with the eyes in their head, they do not see with the eyes of their heart. Spiritually dead people do not see Jesus as the eternal son of God. They do not see his sacrifice as their salvation. They do not see his blood as precious. They do not see his death and his resurrection as good news. They are blind to spiritual realities because they are dead. To to see Jesus for who he is. To receive Jesus and to believe in his name with saving faith, you must have life. You must have eternal life, the life that's been forever. Life makes it possible for you to see. New life brings light to a person who would otherwise be dead and blind. When, when spiritual life drives out spiritual death, the light drives out darkness. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is the light of life. The light of the world. And you'll notice that the last verse of our responsive reading from Psalm 56 refers to God as the light of life. Well, here Jesus is the light of life. Because he is God. And where there is light, there is life. Where there is darkness, there is death. Those who are blind can't see life or light. They can't comprehend it. And so that brings us to verse 6. Let me read verses 6 to 8 again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist, not the author of the gospel. This man, John the Baptist, came for a witness. He came as a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness to that light. So verses 6 to 8 tell us two things. First, they tell us who John was, or maybe better, who John was not. Second, they tell us why Jesus came. So those are the first two questions in the first half of your outline. Who was John, and what was John's purpose? First thing we are told is that John was sent from God. That's who he was. He was the sent one from God. John didn't come in his own authority. With his own words. John was God's messenger. God's mouthpiece. God's man. He was God's prophet speaking God's word. He was sent by God to prepare the way of God. No prophet had ever been greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says, no, 
man born of a woman was ever greater than John the Baptist. He faithfully preached the good news that God sent him to preach. And he preached effectively with authority and power. Now, during the more than 400 years before this, during the 400 or more years before John came onto the scene, God had not sent any prophets to Israel. For over 400 years, God had been silent. God's people had been living in darkness. No word from God. No new light. 400 years of darkness. And now, finally, God is breaking his silence and breaking into the darkness. John was sent from God into the darkness to preach the light. In John 5, Jesus refers to him as a lamp, as a light, lowercase l, little l, light. So he was great. He was a light. But great though he was, a light, little light though he was, he was not the true light, the real light. The ultimate light. John was not the light. The light was and is Jesus. God didn't send John in the world to be the light. Big L light. John couldn't do that. John was just a man. The light is far greater than John. No, John was sent by God to point people to the light. John John made a habit of pointing people away from himself and to Jesus. John had two, a twofold purpose, we could say. First, he came to bear witness to the light. Second, he came to prompt people to believe in the light. That was his mission. That's what verses 7 and 8 say. John came to bear witness to the light and to prompt people to believe in the light. He didn't want people to follow him. He wanted people to follow Jesus. The goal of John's life was to get people to receive the light and to believe in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus means the person of Jesus. The New Testament uses name to refer to persons. But verse six, verses six to eight sort of present a problem. They feel out of place. They, they seem to break up the flow, don't they? Verses one to five are about Jesus, the eternal word, who is the light of life. And then all of a sudden, the author changes the subject on us. He starts talking about John the Baptist. And if we took verses six to eight out the passage would flow very nicely. It would work just fine if that's how God had inspired it, if that's how John, the gospel writer, had written it. Just to go from verse 5 straight to verse 9. To see what I mean, follow along as I read verse 5 and verse 9 together. Verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 9 picks up where verse 5 leaves off. That light was the true light that gives light To every man. And in between those two statements about the light, the gospel writer inserts verses six to eight. 
about John the Baptist? Why does he interrupt his flow like that? He does the same thing down in verse 15. You can look down at verse 15. Verse 14 and verse 16 are about Jesus, the word who became flesh and all of the glory and the grace and the truth bound up in and revealed by Jesus, the word made flesh. But in verse 15, the author interrupts himself to talk about John the Baptist again. These interruptions are a little jarring, maybe. They seem out of place to us, but actually they play an important role in John's gospel. These insertions about John the Baptist accomplish two things. First, they teach us the necessity of bearing witness to the light. Human witness to Jesus. Believers bearing witness to Jesus is essential. It's an essential part of God's plan. The light does not invade the darkness on its own apart from human agency. The light only illumines the hearts of men when God's people are bearing witness to it, reflecting it into the world. The gospel conquers hearts and minds when God's people live out the gospel and talk about the gospel and proclaim the gospel to others. People come to know the light. They come to know Jesus because other people, you and me, show them the love of Christ and lead them to Christ with our deeds and our words. That's how it always works. Our witness is necessary. Your witness is important. And so we can ask, do we bear witness to Jesus? Do you bear witness to Jesus? Are you a reflector of the light of Jesus Christ into the world? Do the people who live with you or work with you, go to school with you, do they know that you are a Christian? Does your life point people to Jesus? Are your words filled with the life that is in Christ? Second, though, these these insertions about John the Baptist teach us that our witness should make much of Christ and little of ourselves. Much of Christ and little of ourselves. Your your witness to Christ, which is your whole life, should be a process of you becoming lesser as Jesus becomes greater. You should be decreasing while Christ increases. That's what we see historically in the life of John the Baptist, isn't it? It's what we see literally in the text. As John writes his gospel, John becomes smaller and Jesus becomes greater, especially in the first three chapters of John. And so are you becoming smaller and is Jesus becoming bigger? Is your life becoming less and less about you and more and more about Jesus? What does your life point to more? You or Christ? Are you building your kingdom or are you participating in building the kingdom of God? What, who is at the center of your world on a day-to-day basis? Practically speaking, you or Jesus, when people look at you, do they see the light of life 
shining through you and reflecting off of you? Or do they just see you? Because there's real there's no bright light to contend with. Well, we need to move on to verses nine to eleven and to the second half of the sermon, which is the most important part of this sermon, the most important part of our passage. And so if you haven't been paying attention or if you're falling asleep, it's be a good time to wake up. Verses nine to eleven. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him in the world. Did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Verse nine is a little tricky because at first glance, it might seem like it's saying that the light illumines every single person without exception. It says that it gives a light to every man or every person, but this does not mean every person without exception. It means every person that receives Jesus and believes in his name without distinction whether Jew or Gentile, man or woman. See, the Bible does not always use the, the words all and every in an absolute, without exception sort of way. For example, 1 Timothy 4.10 says that Jesus is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. See, Jesus is the savior of all people in a sense, in the sense that he is humanity's, all of humanity's only savior. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to save everyone who has ever lived. And he genuinely offers his salvation, his cross work to everyone, to all people. But Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy 4.10 that only those who believe actually receive that salvation in a special way, in a final way. The the salvation that the Savior offers to everyone. 1 John 1.29, a little later in this chapter, John says something similar. He says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which doesn't mean that the blood of the Lamb pays for every sin in the world so that everyone is saved and everyone's going to heaven, universalism. It means that Jesus died for the sins of all people in the world, particularly for the sins of those who believe. It's for everyone in a sense. God sent his son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish. And so verse 9 is saying that the light illumines all people without distinction, particularly those who receive him and believe on his name. The light does not illumine every person without exception. In fact, John 3 makes that very clear. John 3 helps us interpret this passage. John 3, 19 and 20, Jesus says that the light, he says that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. So the light does not illumine every person in the ultimate sense without exception. It illumines every person who believes in Jesus without distinction, whether Jew or Gentile. And so the light illumines everyone who receives him 
and believes in his name. That's what we get when we put verse 9 and verse 12 together. The light illumines, he gives light to everyone who receives him and believes in his name. But before we get to verse 12, the heart of this passage, we need to look more closely at verses 9 to 11, which set it up. Verses 9 and 11 say that the light came into the world, into his own domain. He came to the world that he created. Remember back in verse 3. And yet the very people he made did not know him, understand him, comprehend him, or receive him. The created did not recognize their creator. Verses 10 and 11 say that the light was not known by the world or received by his own. Verses 10 and 11 highlight the deadness and the blindness of humanity in general and of Israel in particular. Remember, at the beginning of the sermon, we were talking about spiritual deadness, spiritual blindness. The world that the light of life came into was void of life, void of light. It was dark and dead. Darkness was dominating. And yet the light of life, it broke through anyway. That's the good news. That's the gospel here. John almost sets this up through verse 11 to make it sound like, well, it's impossible. The dark didn't understand, didn't know it. The whole world rejected it, rejected it. And yet, listen to verses 12 and 13. It's a slightly different translation. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, to them he gave the privilege, the right of becoming children of God to those who believe in his name, who have been born, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 12 is the good news. The light gives those who receive him and believe in his name the privilege of becoming what? Children of God. The light gives those who receive him and believe in his name the right, the privilege of becoming children of God. And then verse 13 adds another gospel perspective to this. It says that to become a child of God, you must be born of God. God's children are not born of special ancestry or human initiative. God's children are born of God. You don't become a child of God by being related to the right person or persons. You aren't a child of God Because your parents are believers. Jesus says in John 8 that even being a descendant of Abraham. Does not make you automatically a child of God. It's the faith of Abraham. that makes you a child of God. Spiritual birth is not inherited by blood. It's not genetic. It does not come about by any kind of human initiative. It is the work of God alone. Children of God are born of God. 
And we can ask, which comes first? Receiving Jesus and believing in his name. We call that faith. Receiving Jesus. Or being born of God. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, being born of God comes first. You're born of God, and then that leads to faith. It leads to receiving Jesus. And we certainly don't want to go on the other other end of that spectrum and say, well, you believe in Jesus first, you receive him, and then after that, you become a child of God by virtue of what you have done by putting your trust in Jesus. But the reality is that it's it's neither one. The idea here is that it's simultaneous. It happens at the same time. Believing in Jesus, receiving him is being born of God. Being born of God is receiving Jesus. And, and we can we can look at this in a sense as God's action being born of God and human responsibility, the the human action that God enables us to do, receiving Jesus. We can see the two sides of this, but they happen simultaneously. And here's one way of looking at it. Which comes first? If your eyes are closed or if you're blind and you open your eyes or you're made to see, which comes first? The opening of your eyes or the seeing? The light coming into your eyes. Which comes first? Well, they happen simultaneously, right? As the light comes in, you see immediately. One doesn't really happen before the other. And so the reason I'm talking about this is because we must not read this passage either as saying, well, it's all about what I do, all about receiving Jesus. And if I receive Jesus and then after I do that, God will act And give me a new birth. But we also don't want to be passive. And say well. I guess I haven't received a new birth. I haven't been born of God. That's why I sin. That's why I don't know God. That's why I do what I do. And I'd love to have this this birth. To be born of God. But I I guess I just need to wait on God. No. That's not what John is saying. That's not the theology here. Neither one of those. The theology is that being born of God is receiving Jesus and receiving Jesus is being born of God. Now, we know that underneath it or over it, however you want to look at it, God is the one doing it. God is doing 100 percent of the work in bringing you to Jesus and giving you the faith to receive Jesus. It's all his doing. But the new birth, being born of God, is receiving Jesus. Jesus and believing on his name. So the question that our sermon text is thrusting upon you today is this. Here's here's the real important part of this passage. Don't miss this. Here's the question. Are you a child of God? Are you born of God? These two questions are really two different ways of asking the same question. Are you a child of God? Are you born of God? Being born of God means being transformed by God. 
having a transformed life. And so is your life being transformed by God? If your life is not being transformed by God, then you are not born of God. Those two things go together. They're inseparable. And if you're not born of God, then you are headed to hell rather than heaven. That's the simple truth. Now, I have a high view of what God does in baptism. And we're going to be talking about baptism in later sermons, especially when we get to John 3, where John talks about the new birth, and he brings in, or Jesus does, and he brings in baptism. Baptism is associated with our new life in Christ. But, but, without faith, without being transformed by God, baptism does nothing. It will not save you if it is not accompanied by a transformed life, the life of transformation that characterizes those born of God. It's sort of like a baptism is sort of like a wedding. If I'm counseling a husband or a wife to be faithful, I might say, I might point them to their wedding, to their vows, to what God did in that ceremony. Because God does do something. He unites people through that ceremony. Something happens there. But if someone says to me, well, I can live how I want as a husband or a wife because... Because of the ceremony. That's all I need. It's real. I got married. So everything's good because of my ring and because of the ceremony. I would say no. Everything is not good. You're breaking that covenant. The ceremony means nothing at that point if you are not living out the implications of what that ceremony means. And the same is true of baptism. I have a high view of baptism. I, I don't want to take away from what God does in baptism. I want to claim. We need to claim the promises. And to believe that God does do something in baptism. Something real. But it must be accompanied with new life. It's not just sacramental. It must be inward. As well. And so let's do a diagnostic here. Let's use First John, the same author of the gospel, to ask ourselves some questions about being born of God. First John has a lot to say about what it means to be born of God. It uses the phrase a handful of times. And so in First John 2.29, says that those who are born of God practice righteousness. So do you practice righteousness? Would the people who see you every day call you a practitioner of righteousness? 1 John 3, 9 and 5, 18 say that those who are born of God do not continue to sin. Doesn't mean that you're sinless if you're born of God, that you never sin. It means to continue to persist in sin with no repentance and no progress, no transformation. So are you persisting in a certain sin with no real progress? Those who are born of God hate their sin, they hate it enough to put it to death. 
Is your life characterized by putting sin to death and growing in righteousness? 1 John 4, 17 says that those who are born of God love one another. Are you characterized by love? Do those who come into contact with you come into contact with the love of God? 1 John 4, 17 also says that those who are born of God know God. Do you know God? If I asked you to describe your relationship with God, would you have anything to say? Do you know God personally? 1 John 5, 4 says that those who are born of God overcome the world. Are you overcoming the world or is the world overcoming you? Are you shaping the world by your righteousness and love or is the world shaping you as you take in all of its sights and sounds and smells and substances? The way you know that you are born of God is similar to the way you would know that an elephant has been in your house. If an elephant were living in your house, roaming around freely, making itself at home, you would know it, right? You need to call Jeff afterward. Your house would be revolutionized by the elephant, right? The evidence of the elephant's existence in your house would not be subtle in so many ways. If you are born of God, the evidence will be clear. It means that God has moved in. He's moving things around. It means walls are getting knocked down. Sin is being destroyed and replaced with faith and love and righteousness. It means your heart and your whole life is being revolutionized by God. That's just what happens. If you are born of God, then the light is continually invading the darkness that's lingering inside of you. Driving it out day by day, week by week, year by year. Yes, with setbacks, but with a clear trajectory toward God, toward heaven. If you are born of God, then you are alive to spiritual things. You care about spiritual things. This means that you know Jesus because he has made himself known to you. It means that you relish, you love the gospel and you talk about it. You think about it. You give thanks for it because it's transformed your life and it's transforming your life. It means that you are drawn to the things of the Lord. Because the things of the world are losing their appeal more and more day by day. It means that you want to talk with other believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, about what God has done and is doing in your life. Because, after all, they are your brothers and sisters, your family members in the household of God, fellow children of God. It means you can hear the voice of Jesus 
because he is your shepherd who speaks to you through the scriptures. And then who gives you ears to hear at the same time. It means you can see the light of life. Because the eyes of your heart have been illumined, enlightened. Because he has given you new life. And new light. In closing, let me read our epistle lesson again. 1 John 3, 1-9. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, when Jesus returns, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of the resurrection, in him purifies himself, just as Christ is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. He who sins or practices sin without repentance, without transformation, without putting it to death, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making us your children. Thank you for giving us the privilege, the privileges of being children of God. Thank you for making us heirs to all the promises. Heirs to everything that you've given Jesus, thank you for giving us access to you through your son and through your spirit. Thank you that we can call you father and Jesus, our brother. And we thank you, Jesus, that you're not ashamed to call us your your brothers. Help us to walk in the light, the light that illumines our lives, our hearts, our minds. Help us to walk in it and to abide in it, to stay in it, to remain in it all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.